Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. Lord, thank you that we are never alone. While we walk in this world, doing our best by your grace to live by faith, there are moments, even this week, many here sitting right now felt deeply alone. Some uh, sitting here while others were singing, perhaps even getting, as we sometimes say, getting their step on, getting a dance going, moving. Uh, They sat down. They struggled to even be able to say to you those words, I'll never walk alone, because in their heart, they felt deeply alone. I pray that you would be with them right now, that you would, you would say, I see you. I saw you all week. You couldn't see me, but I could see you. I know your pain. I know your sorrow. I know your disappointments. And I'm working for your good. You can't see it now, but I'm working for your good. You can't feel it now, but I'm working for your good. Trust me, lean into me. Speak those words over their soul right now, Lord. And I pray that by the miracle of the presence of your spirit, we wouldn't just speak faith. We would sense in faith, we never walk alone. In Jesus' name, all God's people say it. Amen. Amen. My name is Dave. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you. Whether you're here in in, uh, Bethel Brentwood or you are through that lens in Bethel Dixon, it's really good to see you. Just a chance for celebration for you, by the way. I want to give you the numbers in Bethel Brentwood as we are moving towards launch. You know, we've asked those of you who've committed to go to change your, your attendance patterns. So if you have started to do that, um, but we've also seen new people coming to the church who weren't going to church before, which is a, a wonderful thing. Uh, uh, I think it was five weeks ago, we had 28. The next week, we had 37. The next week, we had 44. Hold on now, hold on, hold on. The next week, we had 55. And then last week, we had 66. Now you can praise the Lord. Now you can praise the Lord. Uh, There were, I think, seven spiritual decisions last week when I was there at the end of the service. Pastor James is with them right now. So please keep that uh, ongoing church plant in your prayers. We're obviously thrilled with what God is doing there and moving towards launch in, in January. Today, we're concluding this sermon series that we've been in for a few weeks called Choices. Choices. You make many choices every day, some of them surfacey, some of them deep, some of them insignificant, some of them life transforming, and we've been trying to talk about a few of the central choices that we have to make again and again that either make us more like Christ or less like Christ. I don't know if you know this, but the scientists tell us that you make 227 decisions a day just about food. 
on average, 227 decisions a day just about food. Some of you are really feeling that. I can tell. You're punching each other, laughing at each other, nodding. Well, and that's not even a holiday. I mean, Thanksgiving Day, you might have made 479 choices about food. I don't know. I felt like I made the same choice six times. Uh, pumpkin pie, pecan pie, triple chocolate cheesecake. Pumpkin pie, pecan pie, triple chocolate cheesecake. Well, it's got to be a slice of every single one. How else do you make that choice? It's impossible. That's just food. All the rest of the choices add up to over 35,000 choices every single day. 35,000 choices. If your chooser has been tired lately, there's a reason. It's always working over time. Haven't you felt that sometimes? You're, all, you're just trying to find a place to go out to eat. Well, how about here? I don't know. How about there? I don't know. Would somebody just pick a place for us to eat anywhere? I don't care. I'm tired of the decision. It's an embarrassment of riches that we have surrounding food and everything else, which makes it hard to make choices. You walk into a Walmart with somebody who's just newly come into our country. We have many uh, immigrant families, uh, first-generation families in our church, 62 different nations of birth origin here. When you walk into Walmart with somebody who's coming from another nation, often it's an overwhelm. How do you even decide which thing? 35,000 choices. But here's why we're spending so much time talking about it. When those choices are made again and again and again in the same direction in the same pattern, it forms what we call a habit and habits are hard to, (laughs) there you go. Habits are hard to break. As a matter of fact, you don't break habits in a single choice. It's just not how it works. Choices, in a sense, if you'll follow the metaphor for a moment, are like 3D printing. You know how 3D printer works? So it takes that ink that's built to build up a 3D thing, and one dot at a time, one little line at a time begins to construct something that's fluid at first, becomes rigid later on. It's as though by those 35,000 choices times 365 days times 10 years, we are 3D printing a form in which our soul then has to live. By our habits and our practices, the choices, the thousand million micro choices we're making all the time, we're printing a form that shapes our soul. And then when we try to get our soul to live in some other shape, in some other way, we make a decision and think we would, but that choice just didn't seem to last. Our soul got poured right back into the same form. Brain scientists tell us we actually form grooves like ruts in a road where the wheels of your tire get stuck in a rut and it's hard to get it back out of the rut. There's actual physical grooves in your brain formed by the choices you're making again and again and again. It's shaping who you are and then that shape becomes almost an inevitable result. Choices. It's not just turning off of a light switch. Pastor James talked about responsibility versus blame the other week. We don't just turn off blame and turn on responsibility and never struggle with it again. There was something on the stairs this morning. I tripped over it, fell down flat. Man, I hit it hard. And the first thing that came into my mind was, why didn't somebody put that away? The next thing that came into my mind was, Dave, why didn't you put that away? 
But my first instinct was blame. I laid something down this morning. Actually, it was my sermon notes on, on the, uh, the kitchen little island, you know, where you prepare food and breakfast is happening and stuff is sloshing everywhere. And something got on my sermon notes. And I said, why is there always something on this counter? <laughs> Well, Dave, did you wipe off the counter? And by the way, that's the counter where stuff always is. Would you lay your... See, I couldn't just turn off blame and turn on responsibility. I have to make that choice a thousand times over, a thousand times over. Which is why I think it's so good that we're ending with this particular deep choice today. Blessing versus cursing. Are we choosing to bless or are we choosing to curse? And uh, this might be a sermon in just one minute and then we'll move on with the real sermon because it's really tempting when we see someone else in our life, they have something they need to fix and we think, why wouldn't you just get that together and we're frustrated with them and we don't want to bless them because we're done with blessing them. It's time that they get that fixed. And then in the moment when we can't get something fixed, we wish they would bless us. I mean, after all, I'm trying as hard as I know. Oh, to try. James chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, open them up or turn them on. James chapter 3. It's about four-fifths of the way through your Bible. It's the book after Hebrews, the book before First and Second Peter. James is a Jew, the brother of Jesus, writing to the scattered churches, primarily Jewish, the ones he was writing to all around the known world at the time. James chapter 3. He talks about blessing and cursing in this chapter. But the interesting thing to me is he doesn't start with blessing and cursing. That's where he ends. His conclusion is blessing and cursing, but he begins with teaching. Verse 1 reads this way. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also, though they are so large, driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Why in the world does James want to talk about blessing and cursing but start with teaching? It's actually a feature of wisdom literature in Jewish culture. When you, uh, so Proverbs is a piece of wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes is a piece of wisdom literature. It's a form of writing in Jewish culture. And one of the patterns of it is you will stick two seemingly unrelated truths next to each other and only partially explain it. That's the way they would teach. And then the goal is, for you as you're listening, you're supposed to try to figure out the deeper connection as you contemplate it, as you meditate on it, and once you finally find the deeper connection, you're closer to wisdom. And you actually own that connection better than if they told you straightforward. So let's think about it. How is teaching connected to blessing and cursing? Well, here's uh, the journey I went with that to try to figure it out myself over the last few weeks. You know, they tell us 90%, they did a survey on this, 90% of college professors think they are better than average teachers. 
Not all of college professors can all do math, but 90% of college professors think they are better than average teachers. Now, you may not know this, just so you don't get all defensive for those who are teaching at college. Before I came here, I was a college professor. Uh, For a while there, I was a dean. So I've been in that world. Uh, And I know what it's like to teach in that world. And if I condemn anybody who's a teacher, I'm just condemning me. But 90% think they're better than average. You can't all be better than average. 90% of you can't fit into that. It just doesn't work. Here's what makes it even worse. Two-thirds of college professors think they're in the top 25% of all teachers. (laughs) 67% think they're in the top 25%. Now, this this just doesn't work. Even, okay, those of you who are a little math egghead right now, whether you're going with median or mean, it doesn't matter. 67% of you cannot be in the top 25% of best teachers. And what happens often when you get into a place of teaching is that you get insulated from the feedback you might need to hear, you, and you have narratives that you put in place to protect you against any feedback that might come. You know, I've sat in, in faculty lounges where the primary point of conversation was laughing at students. And early on in my career, that was almost nauseating, and then I found myself several years later actually laughing at the jokes until I finally realized, wait, we just spent the last 10 minutes laughing at the very people we're trying to serve. Where'd that shift happen in my heart? Now, before you get yourself all the way off the hook, they did a survey some years ago and found out that more than 80% of U.S. drivers think they're better than average drivers. <laughs> See, now I got you. And so they did a nationwide campaign to try to deal with this, and through all kinds of measures, ad campaigns, billboards, blinking LED signs at us now, in-school curriculum on teaching, uh, signs blinking at us to stop doing the very thing we just did, and we know we just did it, and we're seeing the sign blinking at us, and we know I just did it. Well, I had a good reason. You know, after all of that work, we went from above 80% now to 73% of us still think we're better than average drivers. Now, I have no survey on the next statement. I have no science on this. But I think that when we're driving, we think that 90% of the other drivers are below average drivers. Am I right? Psychologists call it illusory superiority. Isn't that a fun phrase? It's just fun to say. Illusory superiority. The illusion that I am better than others. And then we construct narratives and defenses to help us maintain this illusion of superiority. How does that connect with teaching, you should be asking? And how does that connect with cursing? Have you heard of Foghorn Leghorn? An image of him I think we have up there, if you remember this old Looney Tunes cartoon, uh, Foghorn Leghorn, there he is. Um, I always wanted to teach anybody else. He's a big old rooster, big old rooster. He'd own the whole barnyard if he wanted to. Maybe because of his size and his strength, 
and he could force his will upon other people. He came out this way, but he was always wanting to teach other people. He'd always talk like this. I say, I say, I say, boy, listen to me. Listen to me now. Listen to me, boy. I say, I can't even get a word in edgewise with you, boy. I got to teach you something. Well, boy, he's a good boy, but he doesn't listen to a single thing I say. Boy, listen to me now, boy. You remember this cartoon? <laughs> and he just, he could keep going, keep going, keep going. And there was this one little character, this little brainiac chick that would wear glasses, you know, and he would say, I got to teach you how to make an aeroplane, boy. Now, let me show you how to make an aeroplane. And he'd make a terrible little airplane to throw it. Then the kid quietly would make something that was amazing and would destroy his airplane and then just walk away. You remember this cartoon? But he is clearly not as good as that little quiet guy, but always wanting to teach that little quiet guy. And no matter how many times that guy was better than Foghorn Leghorn, you'd still hear Foghorn Leghorn saying, now, if you just listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Foghorn Leghorn is funny because he's true. He makes us laugh because we see him all over the place. Those people who don't just teach, they are a teacher. They don't just know a thing better, they are better. And they can't get out of that mode. And they can't even see it when it's happening. The disturbing thing is how easily it slips in on even the most humble of us back door. So what does that have to do with cursing? Let me give you what a curse means. In this passage, if you skipped all the way down to verse 9 and 10, it says, with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. The word curse there in the Greek is made up of two roots, that when you put them together, simply say, bring down. Now, it's a compound word, so it means more than just what the two constituent parts say. But to bring down is the inner nature of a curse. Let me just spell out to you what a curse is. Here's the nature of a curse. Three parts. Three parts. Number one, you think you're better. You think that you are better. Number two, you communicate how they are worse. You communicate how they're worse. And number three, you aim to bring them down. You think you're better, you communicate how they're worse, and you aim to bring them down. That's the inner nature of a curse from which we get the the word cuss, right? Can we talk about cussing in church? How many of you would like for the pastor to talk about cussing in church? Would you like to talk about a little cussing in church? Okay, here we go. Don't be mad at me. Don't judge me. Don't send in emails. Okay, when you're cussing... It's often this structure. So if you want to uh, condemn someone, G-D-U, you're speaking to the one who has power and asking that one who has the power to do it to place that person in destruction forever. So you are elevating yourself, I'm better, and bringing them down with your words. That's the subconscious and subtle thing, G-D-U. When we use some crass versions of that, bleep you, I'm not even gonna give letters because I don't think you need me to, and this is going to be a PG service. Can we agree? Uh, Bleep you, it is a crass version of putting that person underneath you, bringing them down. 
A friend of mine, a former colleague of mine, his father used to tell him every single week when he was growing up, uh, he had a specific day, I just can't remember which day it was, he made a point of doing this, you're a worthless piece of blank, don't you ever forget it. And he treated that like it was medicine his son needed to hear every single week. Cursing leads to that sort of cussing, and you don't have to cuss, though, to curse. Just because you stopped cussing doesn't mean you stopped cursing. If the inner nature of your speech is still to communicate, I am better than you, let me show you how. I'm going to put you in your place. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, boy. It's dangerous. Curses fracture marriages, divide parents from children, set up patterns of sin that continue generation after generation, punch holes in souls that those souls then try to find any addictive behavior they can to try to fill it, but it's like pouring water into a glass with no bottom, no matter how much you put in, it never gets full again. Curses tear apart businesses, divide business partners, break apart churches, kill movements of God. Cursing is one of the most dangerous things in the world. Scripture tells us our tongues have the power of life and how great a fire is set ablaze by such a single spark. That, you know, just that nice, well-meaning guy who looked at his trailer and noticed a chain was hanging low and thought, well, I'll fix that later and drove through the arid, drought-inflicted land in the night with sparks flying off that chain for 100 miles and thousands of acres are ablaze and neighborhoods are destroyed by a reckless spark. Cursing. How does that relate to teaching? (laughs) Let me just say it plainly. The urge to teach often begins with believing we are better than those we want to teach. And if we start there, our teaching, whether it's discipling, small group, life group leading, BSD, BLI, connect class, pastor in the pulpit, it is already on the path to cursing, not blessing. Because the prior choice to blessing and cursing is humility and pride. And prideful people always want to teach. Often, the very best teacher I've found is the one who says, no, 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 I'm not ready to teach. I don't think I could teach that. Oh, oh, that's good. Then you'll learn it while you teach it, and it'll be more exciting for everybody. Let's shove you in there. You're going to be great. You're going to be absolutely fantastic. But the one who says, how come I'm not? Why won't you ever let me? When am I going to get my chance? Well, maybe never now. Because if you need to teach, 
it's at least one sign that you might be foghorn leghorn. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. There are three kinds of curses. There's the obvious, there's the concealed, and there's the mixed. That obvious curse, you stupid, you're so lazy, idiot, how can you be so dumb? What in the world is wrong with you? Now that's not cussing, it's cursing. I'm better than you, let me communicate how you're worse than me, and I'm aiming to bring you down. I'm not building you up, I'm not hoping and yearning for your future, and let me just stop for a moment and say, correction is not wrong. Sometimes we need correction, we need to be corrected in a loving way, this truth spoken in love, yes, that's not cursing. But when you're speaking those kind of labels over people, that's an obvious curse. But then there's the concealed curse. Have you ever felt this? When you're in a conversation, you think everything's fine, but then for the next three days after that conversation, it keeps replaying in your mind, and you start picking up the subtle things and the glances and the way they said what they said, and you just can't feel good about it? Um, I used to hike a lot. I don't hike as much anymore. I do more fly fishing now. But when I used to hike, sometimes I'd take off in the woods for a day hike and I'd just wear shorts. And then you walk through this open field and it looks like it's just a nice and innocent field with green leafy tall plants and you walk right through them and five minutes later, your legs are on fire and itching and you can't get them to stop. Do you know what I'm talking about? Stinging nettles. You walk through a field of those and it's just your legs just turn on fire you can't, and you can't scratch it, rub it, get it off. All the little tiny barbs have stuck into you. They were concealed and you felt them later. Some of our conversations have such an air of subconscious condescension, we don't even realize that the air itself is becoming a curse and not the words. Sometimes you could speak the same words with a different heart and it would be received completely differently. And it's almost impossible to describe the difference, but you feel it when it's there. And then there's the mixed. You know, I love you so much, but you're an absolute wreck. You're my best friend, but you drive me crazy. I'm so glad I'm married to you, but I don't think I can stand much more time with you. This left-handed compliment, right-handed smack. (laughs) Left-handed compliment, (laughs) pull you in and right-handed smack. Shake the hand and pop. Now, if you go back and watch Foghorn Leghorn videos today just for fun, you'll find him smacking people over the face all the time. He <laughs> smack them and then they fall down. They say, now why are you falling all over yourself? Stand up now. Stand up now while I'm talking to you. Look me in the eye. Smack. Hey, you're not looking at me now. Come back up. It's that kind of feeling. Where, why, why, why are you so sad? Why are you depressed? I gave you a compliment. <laughs> because it's all mixed with cursing and it's called a double bind. You can't tell which way you're supposed to feel because this person is nice and mean and nice and mean and nice and mean and it's just a one-two punch. Jab, jab, jab. Pow. Three different kinds of curses. What do you do with all of this? What do you do with it? Are you feeling this or is it just me? I'm telling you, whenever I preach, I mostly just preach at me and every once in a while I wake up and I go, oh yeah, are y'all listening? I don't want to keep making these thousand micro choices that put mixed and hidden and concealed and even direct curses. I'm not cussing. I got rid of that years ago. 
but cursing is slipping in the back door. Uh, James, let's turn back to him for a moment. If we're going to ask what to do, we ought to go to the word, right? James chapter 3, verses 11 through 12 gives us a hint, a clue to what's going on. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It's about the source. Not the flow. A few weeks back, my youngest child, Dawson, my son, he's 14, and uh, my uh, wife and his best buddy, we went out to Fazoli's because teenage boys love Fazoli's because they will give you 15 breadsticks just on site. They, I think they have trained their workers. If you see somebody between the age of 13 and 15 and they're male, just go ahead and hand them every breadstick you have. It'll just save you time. Go start baking more because they're going to need it in 30 seconds. They ate every breadstick available in the entire restaurant. It was fun. We had a great time. But when I went up to get my water out of the little soda fountain thing, just got a cup for water, went up, you know where they put the water on the soda fountain, right? With the red punch. It's always with the red punch. So I go to push the little water thing and out comes water, the color pink. It's pink water, so I just swish my cup around, dump it out, let it run for a while, let it run for a while, let it run for a while, because I've learned, you know. So then I put my cup back in there to get the water, and I put it in just a little bit too far, and I nudge that lever, and out comes the red right then, and I'm looking right away for someone to blame, you know, right away. Who I did, who puts these things out? Why do you create these things this way? You know, now I want to take responsibility for where my head went. No, I want to blame somebody. So then I switch it out again, hold the water and switch it and dump it, switch it and dump it, switch it and let it run for a long time until I can no longer see any pink at all. Fill my cup with absolutely clear water. Go back and sit at my place, start to eat and take a sip. How do you think it tasted? You tell me. Tasted pink. Couldn't see any pink at it at all, but it still had the taste. Why? It comes from the same source. And I can work all the way back from explicit and obvious and mixed cursing, but if in the source I am nursing a curse in the pond of my soul, eventually that flavor is going to come out. And even if the words don't come out, though it's going to be tinged. You're going to taste the condescension. You're going to taste the superiority. You're going to taste the sense that this guy thinks he's better than me. I can't put my finger on it how, and I can't even confront it, but I can taste it. The source has to change. How? Well, if it's got to be consistently for choices to break old habits and make new habits, then I want to consistently, first of all, receive the gracious 
blessing of God. My source has to change. That pond has to be completely cleansed. It has to be flushed out. I need the gracious promises and blessings of God to saturate my life. I need to memorize the blessings of God, not the curses in scripture. Those no longer rest on me. Romans 8 chapter 1 tells me there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So every blessing in this book is now my blessing. And I want to memorize the gracious blessings of God. Internalize the gracious blessings of God. Live in the grace of God. Receive the grace of God. Celebrate the grace of God. Soak in the grace of God. That's got to become the pond of my soul. Otherwise, the saltiness of my soul will slip out into salty speech. Just give it time. Receive the gracious blessing of God. I want to consistently see how others are better than me by God's grace. Scripture tells us that we should consider others better than ourselves. I want to see what's better in you than in me. Abraham Lincoln said, every man is in some way more intelligent than me, and in that I can learn from him. The single greatest president in the history of the United States by some people's measurement said, everyone I've ever met has a way they're smarter than me. Maybe that's why, just maybe, he was such a good president. I want to see how others are better than me and look at them through the eyes of grace that God is continuing to give me as I soak in the saturation of the gospel of God because he is doing a gospel work in their life. They are the creation of God. They are the image and the likeness of God. In them is a glory of God I have not yet seen. And I don't want to be a dirt digger. I want to be a gold seeker. And so I'm moving the dirt to find the gold. And that's where my eyes want to center, I hope. I want to consistently purge my heart from any curse I want to nurse. If there's unforgiveness or bitterness in me, even a twinge of it, it's not only damaging others, it's soaking into me and damaging me. And I want to bless those around me with my words. I need to make those choices a thousand times over if this habit of mine is going to change. So how do I move from cursing to blessing? Are you asking that question? I hope. How do we move? How do we change? First, make your primary identity learner, not teacher. Now, if if you're not still sure how to do it, I'm going to give you how to do it. Make your primary identity learner, not teacher. Matthew 23.10, Jesus says, let nobody call you teacher. You have only one teacher. I'm not a professor, I'm not a teacher, I'm not an instructor, I'm not a preacher, those are things I do. And when God gives me the grace to be able to do them, by his grace alone can I do them. And anything that was good came from him, because every good and perfect gift comes from above, and the Father who is no shadow or shifting. So if it's good, it's from him. If you didn't like today, it's probably mine, right? So I'm not a teacher, he's the teacher. Two, stop looking for evil and start looking for good. Look at people with eyes that are searching and trying to find what is good. Hunt for it. Look for it like you're on a treasure hunt in their soul. 1 Peter 4, 8 tells us to look at each other that way, and I want to look at you that way. Third, ask more questions. Proverbs 18, 13 says, he who answers before he listens, that's his folly and his shame. When somebody's doing something I don't like, I ought to understand why they're doing it first before I say something about it. Can you help me understand? is one of the best questions you can ever start. 
Can you help me understand? Fourth, speak a better future into being. You create with your words the future you're going to live in. This holiday season, you are going to create with your words the future those closest to you are going to live in. When we speak blessing, we speak people into a better future. Nobody is spoken into a better life by being cursed. Doesn't happen. I wrote myself a little manifesto on this that I want to share with you. This was so challenging to me. Over these last few weeks as I meditated on it, tried to work on it, I hope you hear that I'm not saying I've got this down. (laughs) I've got some work to do. I want to read it to you. Are you okay with that? Uh, It'll be available for you online. You can download it. Uh, I'm committed to blessing. I'm committed to blessing others with my words and with my heart. I openly and freely confess that I have too often nursed a hidden curse toward others. I have thought myself superior to them, wanted them to see my superiority, and at times tried to teach others from a place of superiority. I realize now that there is only one teacher, the Spirit of God. I confess this same Spirit wants to teach me through others, by others, and despite others. So I seek to be in all things, in all places, and at all times, primarily a learner of God, a disciple of the Spirit. When I am called to openly teach, I will seek to secretly learn. I will no longer pretend that my worship can lift Jesus Christ up while my words bring others down. If I cannot bless God's visible creation, I will not be able to bless God's invisible character. If I'm not humble with persons I can see, I cannot pretend humility with a God I cannot see. So with God's help, I renounce all curses, both obvious, concealed, and mixed. I will not seek to use my words to put others in their place, bring others down, diminish others' confidence, or to elevate myself above others, whether they can hear my words or not. I include in this renouncing all condescending jokes, all racist and sexist statements, all age-based condescension, all self-exaltation, including trash talking, and I also rescind any self-condemnation. I will not bring myself down in public or in private, for if I condemn myself, I will eventually condemn others. I receive the blessing words of God and pass those blessings on as my primary source of speech. I commit to thinking, speaking, and writing blessings over every single person God gives me in my life. I pray my primary legacy will be blessing and not cursing for my home, my relationships, my service, and my work. That's 
available for you. They'll put the website up on the screen, bethelworld.org backslash blessing. You can download it. I encourage you to print it. Read it out loud to yourself. I'm going to. (laughs) It messes me up so far every time I read it because I see the people I love. But I also see what's in my soul. If we bless, not just as a single choice, but as a habit of life, we will reshape the future we're gonna live in. We will reshape the future of our family, of the generations that come out from us. We will reshape the future of those we get the blessing to disciple and pour into. We will reshape the nature of this church. We will reshape marriages, homes, workplaces, companies. If we make not just a single choice, but a thousand choices over time, the shape of our soul will be blessing. And it will be a habit we almost can't break. Would you stand with me? Ministry team is gonna be available here at the end of the service. You're welcome to pray with them, but I'd like to pray with you now before pastor comes to close our service. I just wanna say a prayer. Lord, each of us who wants to shift from cursing to blessing, we lift our hands up to you right now and we know that only you can change the inner source of our soul. Only you can cleanse out the salt pond and make it a freshwater spring. Only you can put within us rivers of living water that flow out to others. There's no way we can do this on our own. We can't make it happen even by a thousand micro choices, even a million. Unless you guide us, we're lost. Unless your grace leads us, we're lost. Unless your spirit fills us, what fills us won't be pure. So we seek you now. We ask you to fill us afresh and anew with the spirit of blessing, the spirit of grace, the spirit of truth, the spirit of love. In Jesus' name.